From the Clock Tower Mountaineer, this is the C.S. Lewis Book Club. I'm Dan. And I'm Alex. Welcome to our book club. We're fans of C.S. Lewis, not experts, and we're glad you're here with us. Today we are talking about The Last Battle, chapters 1 through 7. And, spoiler alert, if you haven't read along with us to this point, you might want to pause and go read the book, because we're going to spoil an amazing book. And the next week we're going to do chapters 8 through 16 in The Last Battle. So for housekeeping today, we wanted to talk to you, our book club participants, uh, fellow book club participants, because we've heard you guys have texted us or called us or told us that you are following along, that you've loved reading the Narnia series and listening, and we love hearing that. But we're calling you out as far as we want to hear more of your thoughts on the books so we can incorporate it into the podcast somehow, which we're still deciding how that'll be. But... Uh, we want to hear those from you, so please send them in. Obviously, we'll, we always give you the email and some information on how to send those in at the end of the podcast, but please send them. We want to hear them, and we've all, the few that we've received, we, it's really insightful for us, and we see things, obviously, we miss. We don't even cover a lot of things, and it's cool to see what stands out to you guys. And we understand that there's a little bit of apprehension of putting yourself out there, getting through the technological barrier of writing an email or sending a voice memo. So experiment and in the process, just actually send it. <laughs> and don't worry, we'll, we'll put whatever you send in the best light possible. So for today's summary, chapters one through seven, in the last days of Narnia, Shift, a cunning and devious ape, tricks his unwitting donkey companion puzzle into wearing a lion's skin and pretending he is Aslan returned to Narnia. King Tyrion and Jewel the Unicorn, accompanied by the children from another world, Eustace and Jill, try to reveal the ape's deception and put an end to the evil being committed in Aslan's name. So for today, Alex, themes. What stood out to you? I, maybe we should start with the planets. I feel like it always feels good to start. Well, I noticed you actually wrote down the planet for this one. You did that in the theme, so I want, I want to see what you have to say about it. Well, when we walked in here this morning... The feeling as we talked about what we were about to discuss here is heavy. Yeah. I mean, there's so... C.S. Lewis is grappling with some heavy subject matter here. And unfortunately, we, we talked about that this first section might be depressing. And we even stopped it at kind of a, at a horrifying, depressing part. And so you feel that you're talking about death, the loss of hope, the loss of belief, just so many topics that I think uh, we don't usually grapple with on a day-to-day -day basis, but at some point in our lives, we will spend some time in those dark places. And uh, we're going to walk through some of that today, I think. Yeah, some of us deal with it daily. We even <laughs> dream pretty heavy. <laughs> yes, yes, some of us do. Alex, do you, do you have a dream you want to share? <laughs> I don't know if I want to share, but it had to do with the zombie apocalypse and me making the the decision to let myself be killed because I was infected. Ooh. So apparently you can see what types of media are saturating my brain and coming out in my dream mind. Um, but yeah, there's, this is heavy. It's, it's difficult. When C.S. Lewis wrote The Screwtape Letters, it, it's, a, it's kind of a fun, in a morbid way, it's a fun book to read. But a lot of fans wanted him to write more in that fashion. And he said and I'm paraphrasing, that it was easy to write because all he had to do was look into his own heart, but it wasn't fun to write. It was difficult. And he noticed that he was like putting himself in a demonic mindset and it was pulling him down. Mm -hmm. And you can tell he's done kind of the same thing here. It probably was really easy for him to write characters like Shift, but it wasn't something that he enjoyed. And that's the similar, I, I'm just guessing that because that's been my experience listening and reading this book not the screw tape letters, but the last battle, it's been a similar experience because it's fun to listen. You can really see the deviousness of shift, uh, the silliness of puzzle and the conflict that's arising. And you can almost immediately make uh, comparisons to our modern day conflicts and even the conflicts of our own heart, but it's a downer and you get through this, especially this first half. And you're just like, is there any hope? Like, Oh man, we feel like there's 
the good guys are finally getting traction and then it doesn't work out. And that's, you know, I, it's hard not to compare that to your own life. There's things that you're seeking after and you're trying to accomplish and, and the idea of futility of good efforts sometimes I think is what came to mind. Yeah. So, and even on top of the futility of your good effort, you've got groups like the dwarves taking pot shots at different groups just to keep the battle exciting. <laughs> oh, I feel like I know the dwarves. <laughs> yeah. So with themes and, and that weightiness of Saturn, the contemplation of death, the antithesis of Jupiter, which is grandeur and kingliness, a heaviness is like a, almost like a venerable heaviness. And then you have with Saturn, you have old ugliness is one of the phrases that Lewis uses. Lead. Yeah, lead. Jupiter's weighty because it's... I've never heard gold called dead weight, but lead to me, dead weight. Yeah, dead weight. That's a good That's yeah. a good description. And so it's hard to be in the space, but it's very informative. It's very instructional. Yeah. The, the other theme that stuck out to me was around just deception and disguise. Obviously, the whole premise of this book is disguising puzzle as Aslan. And then you also have Tyrion who disguises himself as a Calormene and righteous or good. Um, it's hard. Know. It's hard to talk about a good deception. Good deception right? but yeah. I, I guess I, I like that. Maybe this is too specific, but later on when I'm trying to think if, if this is in chapters one through seven. Yeah, it is. Um, when Tyrion surprises the guard, pretends to be a Calormene, then flips him around and then when he ties him up, says, hey, if I meet you later, I'm going to treat you better. I'll do you a better turn on the next time around or something like that. Oh, yeah. So he still recognizes the, the maybe the evil of deception even when he has to participate in it. Yeah, the, he's uncomfortable not being totally honest in, even in the way that he's presenting himself. And so you can see the goodness is not in the de- type of deception that he uses, but in his, his willingness to take off the deception. There's that transition from deceiving or, or becoming honest finally. Yeah. Almost almost a confession. And I think that's what you see in, in Tyrion in that moment. And the the deception from the other side from from Shift and the Kellormines. And is, the cat. And the cat, <laughs> Ginger, yeah. They're not gonna take off their deception even to the end. So yeah. I also have down here for a theme goodness. Not that you see a lot of goodness. You do see goodness in Tyrion and Jewel and What's the centaur's name? Oh, it's uh, Runewit. Runewit, that's right. It's funny, his name's like Runewit, like the ability to decipher a symbol. In those characters, you do see goodness. But what I mean by a, a theme of goodness is there's a theme of the understanding of what goodness is that I, you know, I, that's what I was grappling with, like, there's deception going on. It's all around the character of Aslan, the character of God and, and goodness. And, and I think that question, maybe it's like goodness with a question mark is mm-hmm. the theme. Yeah. And then how to understand that. And, and that, is, that is our challenge. That's every disciple's challenge is to, is to understand what is goodness and be able to distinguish between good and evil. Yeah. And I, I, think, I think we'll get to this later, but I... I just, one thing, one theme or thought that I had as I went through was just how so many of the characters, how easily it seemed like they were deceived and how easily they went along with this. And so what was instructional for me is to then turn and look at my life and try to see where are the areas where I'm easily being deceived? Why would I allow myself to fall into that deception? And it seems like the characters who have a better understanding of the goodness of God, we're better able to see through that phrase of Aslan isn't a tame lion and what that really means, which we'll probably go (laughs) deeper on. Yeah, we could probably spend the whole podcast talking about not a tame lion, that phrase. So, well, let's get there. Um, All right. Let's take a short break and we'll get into our talking points when we come back. All right, welcome back. Good to be back. Dan, you have the first talking point. Yeah, so right away when you meet Shift and Puzzle, 
you talked about those are very strong characters the i think within a couple pages you get a feel for who this character is there's not a lot of intrigue around these characters and what stood out to me was shift and the way that he manipulates puzzle is by playing the victim card when he wants to get in the pool it's don't you know apes have weak chests uh when when puzzle doesn't want to put on the lion skin and he says hey you know I let you do all the other stuff that you're good at, like hauling all my stuff. (laughs) And I want to do the thing I'm good at, which is thinking. So don't think, you know, it's always poor me. Yeah. You should do more for me. And that playing the victim card then turns into when he sees the lion skin, he sees the opportunity and he says, this is our chance to make things right. Yeah. And, Obviously, make things right defined by shift, someone who's entirely self-centered and self-serving looks like oranges of bananas, which I love that then Puzzle points out to him. I didn't think anything was wrong. I, I don't think, I don't know of any people that like oranges, bananas besides you. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, which, by the way, Patrick Stewart's narration of this, uh, Alex made a good point that you you have to let yourself <laughs> just enjoy it because if you don't, it's almost jarring sometimes. Uh, anyway, so that his first thought, once he sees this opportunity to manipulate more people and get more of what he wants, he sees the lion skin, he sees the opportunity to get more of what he wants. He, his initial reaction is that. And then when Puzzle pushes back, he says, oh yeah, and you can have sugar. The thought that came to my mind was, how can we distinguish between when, I, I think as disciples of Christ, we're called to make things right, to be a force for good, to act upon the world in a righteous way. How can we discern between when that's self-serving or when it, our right is actually Aslan's right? <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. To... Well, I think the manipulation that, that shift uses on puzzle, the passive aggression, I think that sort those that sort of language comes to my mind whenever I want to get something and use other people in order to get that. Obviously, even me phrasing that, obviously, that's a manipulative mindset to be in. Like I understand what Schiff's saying. He's just not. He's not keeping himself in check. He's using all of his cunningness, his wits, as a as a weapon against Puzzle to get what he wants. And I think the reason that he's not, he's even given up on morality or how to treat somebody well is because he sees himself as a victim. When your priority is protecting yourself from the manipulation or the good that other people have, you can imagine Saturn looking at Jupiter and feeling really jealous or envious. Hmm. You know, Saturn's not worried about treating Jupiter well because Jupiter has it all. He's the biggest. He's the best. You know, it's think of yourself as looking at whatever type of person in high school and thinking envious thoughts that turn to, oh, they're actually stupid or dumb or whatever, and and try to take other people's admiration and turn it into, well, I know better. Those people are actually bad, even though everybody thinks they're good. And you can kind of see that mindset in that place. And we've all been there because nobody really is on top, at least forever. And so even <laughs> even the most popular kid in school has gone through moments where they're envying somebody above them. And so when you're in that state of mind of envy or wanting to to define yourself as the victim, you stop checking yourself for how well you're treating other people. It's that defensiveness. So it almost seems like and he's old and ugly like Saturn, right? The shift is. And that idea of of putting himself in that place which I think if he were kind, you'd say, oh, he's wizened and venerable and you could, you could take the same character. It's not a superficial thing to say old and ugly. It's like what's going on in his heart. And he physically shows that because he's older than, I don't know how old he says, he's older than anybody around him or whatever. And that's why he's so wise. That's what he says. But he's almost worn out by envy and greed. And because of that, everything that he uses, all of his wits, it's not to keep himself in check. It's just to use people to get what he wants. And you see that in all the villains in these books. And and it's interesting that later on, Shift ends up pretty miserable. And I wonder if it seems like the other evil characters in this book 
have a little bit of a higher purpose than just being completely, I don't, I don't know, I, I feel like they're self-serving too, but they're able to take a little bit of a higher perspective and so they can take control of the situation, whereas shift is so just self-gratifying and self-centered that he loses he loses his spot in the power power hierarchy really quickly. Yeah, he's uh, he's a tragic character. And you can almost feel bad for him because you know that he's it's like he's he's broken. He's not really that evil, but he's just spiteful. And the other characters, he's the Calorine captain and and even Ginger the cat, they're more wise. They're and maybe wise isn't the word. But they're actually really evil. Their intentions they're are conniving. <laughs> yeah, their intentions are openly evil, at least, or even to themselves. They're not even really pretending. And so, Shift, in a way, is a dupe in the same way that he's made Puzzle a dupe. Yeah. And I think I have far more likelihood to go down that path than I do the true evil that you see in the book. And that's, I think, the warning is look how cunningness and um, victimhood can entice you to do things that even on their face aren't maybe that evil. Maybe it's just passive aggression or manipulation. But that turns into the greatest catastrophe Narnia has ever seen. Couldn't help but notice catastrophe. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of those. Yeah. As far as it, it, when we are seeking to bring righteousness into the world, that that's a judgment call. Yeah. And so how do we do that without becoming a shift in some ways? The judgment has to be of your own heart. And even the judgment of your own heart isn't up to you, thank goodness, because you're going to get more than you deserve because of the judgment of God. His judgment is merciful and just. He knows how to judge other people, and it's not your business. And so whenever you think that you need to dictate the way that other people ought to behave, you're already stepping into ground that's you don't have authority to step into. So judge your own heart. Be careful even there. But make sure that you're behaving in the way that you've seen the example of. And this is kind of what is bringing my mind into how to recognize goodness. Because we don't worship Jesus just because he did miracles. We don't worship Jesus because we know that he is the son of God. We worship Jesus because he is good and because what he does is goodness, because he gave the example and we follow his example. For Jesus to say, keep my commandments or to say, come unto me is the same thing because by following his example, you will, even without thinking about it, keep all of his commandments. He's not commanding us to do these arbitrary things and then saying, follow me in some other context. He's saying, be good in the way that I am good. And this is why John says, he, we love him because he first loved us. He even taught us how to love and what goodness is. And when I was thinking about that going through this book, I thought of the Socratic dialogue, the Euthyphro. And so if you know, if you're familiar with the Socratic method and, and the dialogues, Plato wrote down all of the, these conversations that Socrates supposedly had with these different members of his community, these other citizens of Athens. And one of them, Euthyphro, was asked by Socrates why the gods are pious, right? Using those words in a culture that is polytheistic and the word pious just means godlike or, or goodness. And he asks, are the gods pious because what gods love is they're defined as piety or and and using this term these terms might be a little confusing so i'll just say god and goodness is god good because what he does is defined as good or is he god because what he do, does is so good and i think as christians it's important that we realize that god is god because he is good are you think i'm thinking of the dark night line it's not who you are inside, but what you do that defines you. And obviously that philo philosophical alignment can't be generalized to everything. But if you're in doubt, a lot of who we are is our behavior. I'm not denying the existence of a soul or something at your core. But I know that C.S. Lewis really believes strongly that for something to be good, it has to be understandable through reason and understandable 
through the reason of even the most simple and humble of the honest disciple. If not, if it's not understandable, then the word goodness loses all of its meaning. Yeah. From your, from your Mrs. Beaver and Lucy's to the most erudite <laughs> among us. And that's how you avoid the sophistries of our betters telling us what goodness is. That doesn't feel like goodness, you know, puzzle saying, well, I don't really want those things. And at one point, Schiff's talking about all of the good that will come from their, their enslavement to Kalorman, all the Narnians' enslavement to Kalorman, and all the advancements in technology that they can get by that. And the, Muzzles and, the, and prisons. Right, all this progress, <laughs> quote unquote. And the bear's like, well, we don't want those things. We want to be free. In his simpleness, the bear who spends this whole conflict just being confused was not confused at what real goodness was. You hit on two things. First, when you talk about Tyrion and Jewel, and we mentioned this before, but they have, right from the beginning, they have this relationship that just seems to have this depth of goodness to it. The way, they all like a brotherhood between this unicorn and, and the king. And something that's really sweet to me that I relate to a lot is when they first start hear, hearing tidings that Aslan is in the country that he's here, their reaction to it. I, you know, they, I think, do they weep together then? Or that wasn't weeping together. They're, they're just in awe. Tyrion says something like, I can't put myself to any recreation or work or something like that. Yeah. They're, because... they're just th this day, they never imagined that they would actually be able to be there when Aslan came back. They had this hope what it made me relate to is the sacrifices and what you give up as you are trying to follow the Savior. How beautiful that moment will be when we finally get to stand in front of him, when we finally get to meet him. And, and you feel that from him. And that's something I've felt before, that longing, that desire to that. I didn't even believe it would be possible that I'd be able to experience this here and now. And uh, so, so, so I love that. And then that, I think that if you hold that up as the example of what a disciple of Christ should feel, and then you see all of the animals and the dwarves and everyone just so easily deceived by this fake. And that's why, obviously, Tyrion and Jewel, the line that they wish they would have died yesterday when they start hearing about the atrocities happening. Uh, they wish they would have died yesterday. When they, when, they would, when they could have some possibility of being happy because they knew if you, rip, if you rip Aslan or their foundation, their rock out from underneath them, that any future days lived were never going to bring happiness. Yeah. Yeah, what Jewel says is, if you're dead, to, uh, talking to Tyrion, and Aslan is not Aslan, then what, what do I have to live for? I think that's important to show they know the character of Aslan, even though it's been so long, generations, since Aslan's been in Narnia. So, you know, the animals don't even know what a lion looks like anymore. But Tyrion and Jewel know Aslan still so well by his character, not by why he looks, what he looks like. It's, he's, they're not worried about this superficial, just something that's a lion and powerful. They know Aslan for his goodness. And so it, rather than believe that this false Aslan is Aslan, they just think, I guess there's no Aslan. If, if this is Aslan, then what we believed in didn't ever exist. Yeah. And so they would, it's not, they're not, they don't fall victim to what these other Narnians fall into, which is, oh, this is what Aslan is. They're thinking there is no Aslan. The other thing that's interesting there is the belief, the whole, the whole facade that that Schiff sets up, that he parades Puzzle out in the moonlight when it's darkest, and well, you can see him, you can't hear him. Had the animals relied less on seeing, and it made me think of you know when people, Christ talked a lot about people who were looking for miracles. They wanted to see a miracle to have faith, or to believe, or to follow him. And these animals all relied on that moment at midnight to see some lion. What is the word? When Tyrion really watches him, he he uh, stumbles back into the shed and he realizes, like, <laughs> this isn't a real lion. Uh, but 
if they were relying too much on the signs, too much on the seeing, and not enough on on the faith, and actually coming to know Christ for His goodness, then you were going to be deceived. Right. And it, it made me look at my faith and say, where am I looking? Where am I relying too much on the sight and not just enough on the goodness? Because especially nowadays, I feel like more and more uh, my belief and faith is weighted on. I haven't found anything more good, (laughs) more good than what I find in Christ and Christianity. Well, let's take a break. And when we come back, more, more, more good, (laughs) more good. All right, welcome back, Alex. I'd love for you to uh, talk a little bit about not a tame lion. That's a line that's been used in other Narnia books. It's used multiple times in this one. It's the reason Shift gives for why Aslan's behaving in a way that previously seems to the animals different. (laughs) Yeah. What are your thoughts? Well, Lewis is trusting us to kind of figure this out for ourselves, or at least to grapple with this question, because I think what is meant in previous books about Aslan not being a tame lion is don't think that we can command him to do something. That's the that's the wrong order of the authority. God's ways are higher than our ways. And so if we try to say, oh, I can predict God, or I can tell him what to do sort of thing. Well, we're, we're when, missing... when you're saying that, I think of Mr. Beaver when the kids ask if he's a nice, like if he's gentle or nice and safe, no, safe. He's not anything but safe. Or I think of Jill Pohl when she meets him in Aslan's country, and I've swallowed cities and men and armies yeah. and whatever. So sorry, keep going. But yeah, and, and Mr. Beaver says safe. He's of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's good. And so that's where that's the distinction that I think is removed when Shift is saying he's not a tame lion. I'm going to take that one true factoid fact, quote unquote, and run with it. And everything else gets sacrificed on the altar of this one misunderstood virtue. And that is the way that, you know, the demonic influence on our hearts and our minds will get us to do very evil things is to find something that we say is a good, uh, raise it up above everything else. And sacrifice all other virtue to that one thing, whether it's, you know, quote unquote, freedom or equality or those types of platitudes of virtue. And they have to exist in a synergy or harmony with each other because God is not just merciful. He's also just. And so if you sacrifice all justice to mercy, that's not godlike. If you sacrifice all mercy to justice, that's not godlike either. And this is the cunning deception of the powers that would have you be their slaves is they're going to try to hook you with this counterfeit virtue based on one thing and sacrifice all other virtues to it. But this question, not a tame lion, and yet, well, then how do we know the lion? If it's higher than us, if Aslan's ways are higher than ours, and we don't, we can't understand him, then how will we know what is good or if we're just too stupid to understand what's actually good for us? This is the, the dilemma that puzzle is in and the puzzle that all of our, we are in, our minds in this whole process. Uh, the, the rabbit hole I went down because we had some time between recordings of this, the last episode and this one is Soren Kierkegaard has a book called Fear and Trembling about the dilemma that Abraham is in with being commanded to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Ooh, I love, I love that book, Fear and Trembling. And it's, I can't really explain it in a way that gives it justice because what it looks like is God's commanding this evil thing, kill your child. And then Abraham, because of his faith, goes and does it from kind of this simple rudimentary type perspective I mean, a pastor or some, some teacher wouldn't tell us that story and then find out that, well, I'm going to go sacrifice my kid to God and 
uh, that's goodness, right? They would say, no, no, don't do that. It's like, yeah. well, then what was the point of you telling us the story in the first place? And what Kierkegaard says is in part of this book, he says, and I think we've referenced uh, Hegel before in this podcast, but he says, I understand Hegel. Even the parts that he's re really unclear about, I think I actually, and he's like, if I can be so rash, uh, I understand those dilemmas and I understand them better than he did. <laughs> but Abraham keeps me up at night. And then he describes the difference between what he calls a night, night with a K, a night of infinite resignation uh, versus a night of faith. And he, he refers to himself as saying, I understand how to be a night of in infinite resignation, meaning you're getting the, the commands of God and it's difficult, but you're going to, you know, have a stiff upper lip and go about it with boldly. Yeah. And he says, the night of faith is a little more difficult to identify. And it might be that lowly neighbor of yours. And it would ha you'd have to do some real logical analysis and interaction with that person to finally get there. He says, I don't know for certain what it looks like. I just know that that person exists because I see it in the character of Abraham. But if I ever find somebody like that, I will drop everything that I do and follow this person and study everything of their behavior because I know <laughs> it's above me and I know I don't really understand it. And he goes through some analysis of the way that Abraham approaches his command to do that. And he says, he's not a, a knight of infinite resignation. What he's experiencing, even the way that he rejoices when the ram is given to him, the way that he kind of just like not very enthusiastically goes about it. He's not looking for excuses, but he's not also like confident that look at me, I'm so brave. I'm going to give up the greatest thing, my child. And it's difficult, and I, I can't do it justice, but if you really want to grapple with that question, the goodness of God and the difficulty of his commands, I would say read Fear and Trembling. But, it, but it's important that God's not giving you or me the command to kill my child, or your child or my child, because I'm not there yet. At very best, I'm a knight of infinite resignation. At very best, I can go about and, and be a martyr to something more difficult, but he'll never ask of you something that you couldn't understand as goodness. I have a hard time understanding that command being good for Abraham, but I have faith that Abraham understood it. This is helpful for me because I think I jumped too fast to maybe being critical of the animals for just going along with, with the hoax wholesale. But if you really... If, Tyrion and Jewel, it takes them a while before they they recognize it for what it is. And maybe that's because they acted out of faith and they held on to their faith as long as they could in that, well, there must be a righteous purpose behind this. And you even Jewel, when he first hears about some of the bad things happening, he kind of gave a justification. Well, maybe they were doing something where they, <laughs> this is supposed to happen. But it's a really difficult question. But that's interesting. It makes me maybe slow down a little bit on how fast you can judge um, how people are figuring out, uh, figuring out their way forward as far as following Christ. Yeah, as, as common disciples like you and I are uh, looking at the story of Abraham, we don't need to know, and we probably can't know what the experience that Abraham was had over this long period of, of having to follow through this command. But the conclusions are really clear. Uh, God, God is good. He doesn't make Abraham go through it. And the blessing that Abraham gets from that process is, you know, his whole, his posterity, all the blessings through his children. It's like, almost like you thought God was the type of person, you know, being that would call for the sacrifice of your child. No, he's so much the opposite that he's going to bless your child and all your descendants. And he's going to give his child. It's, not that this, this fake Aslan wants the Narnians to be crucified for his sake, but the real Aslan is crucified for their sake. And that's the moral that you can tell. Even the simplest mind can understand as far as the character of God that comes through the story of Abraham. Don't worry as you mentally mature and grow beyond where I am. Because I know that it's like, I'm, I know enough to see that the ceiling above me is broken, but I haven't I haven't gotten up there yet. I'm still at very best 
and I still struggle with being a knight of infinite resignation. But what Kierkegaard says is that's the step before, the last step before becoming a knight, a knight of faith. And that's our whole life experiencing experience is how do we transcend that human context to something more godlike. And whether we can do it at all or not, we know that the result is love. When you when you talked about Shift wanting the Narnians to sacrifice themselves, crucify themselves for Aslan, to fill his coffers so he can do the good he wants to do, versus, I, I think it's Tyrion that says, Aslan, the lion whose blood by which all Narnians are saved... It, and there's the, when the lamb, the, you know, Shift is up there and he's talking, talking, talking. He's kind baby. of like, everyone's quiet. And this little innocent baby lamb speaks up and says, the thing I don't understand, because at this point they're saying that Tash is Aslan and Aslan is Tash. And he says, I don't, I don't understand why Aslan would be friends with a god like Tash. And that was interesting. I, I think of power hierarchy and if you think of god as just the top of the power pyramid and that's what makes you god then tash or aslan are equal equal they're replaceable they're the same they're the same but if then you couch that with goodness that what makes you god is good and the goodness that comes forth from god then obviously aslan is stands alone yeah at the top and not only like that power with goodness, but primarily goodness in the, in the language of the first and second things, firstly, good, secondly, powerful. Yeah. Another interesting point was this sham did so much damage and it made me think about how the, sometimes the worst lies or the greatest evil is the stuff that's closest to truth. Yeah. Because like you said, a lot of us aren't going to become the cat. We're not going to become the guy who's trying to orchestrate a grand master plan to wreak havoc upon all of civilization. Uh, but when we think we're aligned with truth, it gives us maybe license to behave or act in ways that we otherwise wouldn't. So I was curious to get your thoughts on that. I was just thinking of like, you know, there's the religious the Christian numerology stuff, I guess God is associated with the number seven and sometimes seven, seven, seven. And then the devil is with the six, six, six. It's interesting that the devil is not negative seven, negative seven, negative seven. Yeah. Right. It's close, but just off. Um, the, a lot of times Lewis describes what the power of evil is, is not in creation, but in corruption. You take the good thing and you corrupt it. Right. The, the lies of Satan are, truths sort of you know the the object lesson that i've used in the past is salt, salt being sodium and chlorine and how salt is this it's this mild flavor enhancer it's good it's um your body needs it it's important and it's definitely not going to explode but if you take the chlorine out of sodium sodium will explode <laughs> And chlorine, chlorine will poison you. And it's like these, the sodium and the chlorine are, are two, they're the only two ingredients of this thing, of, the, of salt. You remove one from the other and you can even say that that's like a context for the truth. And then all of a sudden it becomes explosive and damaging. And you have the Benjamin Franklin quote, half the truth is often a great lie. Hmm. And so that's where we, you need to be careful. That's why it's important to have that hierarchy of goodness to power. Because if you're shown power, it might demand your adoration. But without goodness, it's not only not quite there, it's explosive and poisonous and dangerous. Hmm. And that's the power of evil, is to corrupt goodness. That's the only power evil has. So why do you think Shift tells all the animals he's a human? That, that part was interesting to me. To me, if there was a time where the animals should have maybe figured out that this ape was up in the night is when he's, they, they'd seen a man. It seemed like they were familiar with humans and yet an ape who sat them and told them all these things that Aslan's telling him then tells everybody, I'm a man, just so you know. Yeah. It seems really blatant and kind of obvious. 
He's getting a little careless with his deception. It's what he wants. He wants to be a human. It, through humans is where the line of authority has come in the past, right? The Pevensies were a response to a prophecy of humans sitting on the throne of Narnia. He's almost a human. That's a, hmm. oh, where, what book is that where it says, you got to be careful of the things that are almost human or were once human and aren't anymore. And that's, I think that same concept is close, not seven, but six, you know, close, but a corruption of something that's good. I can't think of anywhere else in the Narnia series where any of the animals show any desire to be human. I feel like right. they're held in the same regard. You know, we talk a lot about the horse treated like uh, a horse that doesn't talk and that made Tyrion so angry, he kills someone, you know. So they're treated like exact same level of respect. So it's an interesting time when all of a sudden Lewis brings in this one of the animals wanting to be human. Yeah, what comes to mind is in mere Christ Christianity when he talks about the different, different types of pretending. The animals know what they are and they don't need to be human to be good. They're talking beasts, just like humans are talking beasts. And so there's nothing divine necessarily within being a human, right? If we want to pretend to be God, that's a problem. If you want to make that analogy, right? Step down. The God is to us like the animals or like humans are to animals. I think it's kind of the analogy and don't look too far into that because Lewis kind of flips that around every once in a while. But you can pretend to be God if what you mean is pretend. Are, you, are we not all gods? The line from the New Testament. If you look, after, look at the character of Christ, you look at what it means to be a godlike being, and Christ says, come unto me, follow me, and you take him seriously and you say, okay, I'll try to be like you. I'll do what Jesus would do. Will you ask that yourself that question. What would Jesus do? You're, pretend, you're pretending. You're pretending on being like Jesus. You're practicing. But then there's the other type of pretense. And this is the pretending that I think we use the word for what more often is, I want people to think that I'm Jesus. I, I want people to believe that I'm godly. And I want my neighbors to think that I'm more righteous than them. I want to go to my church and instead of seeing it as a hospital for sinners, see it as a place where saints can flex. And I'm there and, oh, I hope everybody here thinks I'm as righteous as I want them to think that I am. And then that will keep me from going and doing what I need to do in my congregations, which is confess my sins and help bear the burdens of, of, of one another. You lose all of the actual purpose when you start doing the pretense, the pretending that is the wrong type of pretending. Now we're all there to fix the ailment, you know, the whole need no physician. So if we're going there, we need a physician. We need to be healed. So we're, we're pretending we're trying to be healed, but we're not whole. And I think it's understanding the nuance between the different definitions of that word and shift is pretending. The, the analogy of saints going somewhere to flex hits a little too close to home, I think, just because of the damage that obviously shift wrecked upon the Narnians and the damage that we wreck upon each other when we do go to our congregations or make the goal to put ourselves up above other people and have them perceive us as, as better than. It's probably it's some of the ugliest. <laughs> when I see... Some of the ugliest outcomes from all of us imperfect humans getting together and trying to follow Christ when, when that type of stuff's happening, it's, it can bring me down pretty low. No matter what other people do, you just worry about yourself in, in that way. Worry about yourself not as only look out for number one. Worry about where your heart is and then do what Jesus does and help other people. Despite what the world thinks about them, be they harlots or and sinners and publicans that's that doesn't matter what jesus did was help those people too and so justifying how we help is not what it means to be a disciple the reason that comes to mind is because i know that's where my judgmental heart so easily goes is when I'm, I'm so worried and being critical of myself how easy it is to start deciding who deserves my love and who doesn't and uh, it's, it, the greatest of all has 
already made that decision for himself, which is everybody. <laughs> everybody deserves <laughs> everybody. it. So. I love that. Uh, the, the last point I just wanted to bring up was th- there was something powerful before we go into our quote from the book. There's something powerful about when Tyrion, he's been tied up and he starts maybe losing hope or just feeling like he, this is a, the darkest hour for him. And he starts to remember the, you know, he kind of goes through a little history of the other Narnia books and what's happened in Narnia and when when the kids have shown up and when Aslan's help has shown up. And after he remembers all of those different instances, he calls on Aslan's name. Yeah. And the kids show up. I don't think you can ever forecast in your life when those moments will be, when you need to call on his name. But I think you know him when you're in him. And that's when all of a sudden that faith that I think in the day-to-day and whatever else hopefully is there and hopefully you're working on and building, that's when it really is becomes a rock and can be a rock uh, for you. And so it was a powerful uh, moment for me. Just when he hits that moment, he realized this is his darkest hour and he reaches out. It's interesting because after he has his dream, he talks about the, the bleakness, but then something changed in him. He he'd said a prayer, and nothing changed about his surroundings. But the, a change started happening in him. He started to become more hopeful. Yeah, and I think that's you know, there's all these lessons around certain principles of Christian virtue, and, and even praying. And and I probably don't do that nearly enough. But Tyrion is such a good character, and and it's and there's tragedy. He's the last of the kings of Narnia, and it's you know, Lewis isn't. Isn't Hate trying to, to hold it all that fall apart on your watch. Yeah, <laughs> and and Jewel even says to Jill, I think when they're t- walking and talking, all worlds come to the, to an end, and you really have to get into that like heaviness of finality, even halfway through the book, and you're like, oh my gosh, nothing is working out. Yeah, and we can still see what goodness acts like in the ho- most hopeless of circumstances where there really is no hope of victory. Yeah. One one other moment that was cool, and it's always Tyrion. Tyrion and Jewel are some of my favorite characters <laughs> that we've read about. When it, it C.S. Lewis has this kind of castaway little moment where he just says, "Jewel was sitting with Puzzle," and Jewel is this noble unicorn, brother of the king type uh, unicorn, and Puzzle's this kind of simpleton donkey yeah right who's been a cause of all these problems and it says and jewel talked to him kindly about hooves and and things that they could relate about and just just showed him love and i thought that was that was really cool as little line but no insecurity on jewel's part so he could just you know he didn't have to flex he didn't have to posture he could just talk to puzzle on his level the part from the book that I want to play is in chapter four, and it's when the animals are coming to help Tyrion and, and feed him. He's tied up and captured because he's given himself in. I think this question and what I think is a little insight into how you can have confidence if you're on the right path comes through one of the characters. Do you think it really is Aslan? asked the king. Oh, yes, yes, said the rabbit. He came out of the stable last night. We all saw him. What was he like, said the king. Like a terrible great lion, to be sure, said one of the mice. And you think it is really Aslan who is killing the wood nymphs and making you all slaves to the king of Kalorman? Ah, that's bad, isn't it, said the second mouse. It would have been better if we died before all this began. But there's no doubt about it. Everyone says it is Aslan's orders, and we've seen him. We didn't think Aslan would be like that. Why, we we wanted him to come back to Narnia. He seems to have come back very angry this time, said the first mouse. We must all have done something dreadfully wrong without knowing it. He must be punishing us for something. But I do think he might be told what it was. I suppose what we're doing now may be wrong, said the rabbit. I don't care if it is, said one of the moles. I'd do it again. Yeah, so I I don't think that it's just by chance what these animals are. 
the fact that it is the mole that says he doesn't care, he'd do it again. How do you mean? Well, he's a mole. He lives underground. He's so low, he's even under the ground. He's a publican or a harlot or, you know, he's one of these characters, these Narnians that um, is probably not envied or maybe thinks of himself as simple the same way that Puzzle thinks that he's stupid. And yet the mole still can see something that cuts through the sophistry of the ape, which is, I don't care. I'd do it again. Now the confusion is, um, he, he's, he's seeing the goodness and following the goodness and detaching it from what he thinks is Aslan. But you can't detach goodness from God. God goes with the goodness. And so what he's doing is a behavior, a godlike behavior. He's just got a little bit of the definitions mix, mixed up. And so that's where the simplest of us, if we're honest, we know what goodness is. And we might not be able to understand God, but we can understand good. So understand good, and that's where God is. That's how you can know him better. I think that's a good way to end it. There's a lot of mouse voice from Patrick Stewart there at the end. <laughs> Hope you made it through and could still listen to what was going on. But. That was one of the moments when, when he does the hee-haw of the donkey when he's celebrating after they've been quiet for a long time. When the cat runs out. Is that? Is that's that that's next. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> and the mouse voice. Those are the moments. All right, well, th thank you so much for joining us today. Next week, we will be covering The Last Battle, chapters 8 through 16. Thank you for being in our book club. We hope you'll continue with us. If you'd like to participate with comments, questions, criticisms, or corrections, you can email us a message or voice memo at bookclub at mountainairmtnair.media. And while you're at it, please subscribe, rate, review on the podcast app. Yeah, thanks again for being with us on this journey. We're coming to a close on the Narnia series, but that's not the end of this book club. That's we're, right. not, we're not a Narnia book club. We're a C.S. Lewis book club. And so next, after we do The Last Battle, we're just going to keep on trucking through. Paralandra? Which one? Uh, Out of the Silent Planet. Out of the Silent Planet. And maybe before then, an episode where we showcase you, the listener. So get those voice memos and... Every time we read uh, criticisms and corrections, you get the tremblies <laughs> a little, a little bit. But I <laughs> do, waiting for I do rolling. want it because you know I'm a, you know, like we're students too. We're we're still trying to understand this better. We're not experts, like we say at the beginning. And so, whether you're an expert or not, don't be shy. If you hear us say something, you're like, no, 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 that is not what is going on in this part of the book. Please share it with us. So. Thank yep, because then we can eviscerate you without you being here. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we just, we just really are. Just excited. kidding. We will rejoice in the, in the comments. Yeah. So thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.